You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. As collaborative as theater can be, there are some times when the creative process can be more like herding cats. With no clear direction as everyone tries to get on the same page, hopefully. And that's Broadway or community theater, a web series or a major motion picture. I've certainly been in shows that started off a bit chaotic but got better as the cast and creative team could unify around a singular vision for the show. But today's guest has a few stories about the various ways shows come together, some more successfully than others. It's always hard doing a new show because it's always changing. You know, you've got four new joke lines and a set of new lyrics, and you got to do them that night. You know, for me, it's much easier to put in a new line than it is to put in a new lyric. If I get a new lyric, my brain wants to explode. Lisa Howard began her Broadway career almost 20 years ago with a little show with a big name, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Since then, she's gone on to originate roles in three other Broadway shows, and we'll be talking about two of them in this episode. The first is Dolly Parton's 9 to 5, which she calls one of the roughest rehearsal periods she's ever gone through, followed up by Escape to Margaritaville, a fun show for the cast that didn't find as much fun here in New York City. And we end with a discussion of a topic that she says comes up in every interview. But for this podcast, she wanted to talk about it on her own terms, rather than it being something someone else found brave or unusual. Because you often get pigeonholed and that's all you're seen as, which the industry is changing because now you see more and more people of all shapes and sizes and it doesn't have to be talked about. They're just people. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode here on Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning theater podcast hosted by yours truly, Patrick Oliver-Jones an actor and singer for more than 30 years. Every other week, I talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and find past episodes. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Lisa Howard. You're already laughing. You're already laughing at me. (laughs) It's so good to see you. It's so good to have you on my podcast. I thank you for being here. My pleasure. Now, you and I, we just got through, this was a a few months ago, we just got through with 42nd Street. And I mean, we we had a blast. And now we never actually got to share the stage together. We were never really in a scene. I don't think so. We crossed... Like ships in the night. Yes, yes. Backstage. Well, in fact, there was one time when, as you were making your entrance, I had to leave. Yeah. So that was, so that was pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that was it. No, I really, I really do think you, because you weren't in the group numbers. No. Your character. No. Yeah. But I mean, you had an absolute blast with that. I mean, you have a fun character with Maggie, who's just this no-nonsense, fun, loving gal. <laughs> and so Writing shows. Right. 
it seems to fit your personality, that kind of character. And I think because Randy took the show in a more, I want to say, more grounded, real place, I definitely feel like that's a little more me. I mean, I can be the big walk walk out to the audience, you know, and there was a little bit of that just written into the character. But I really liked just playing her as as a real person, just kind of having that freedom to be natural and not have to feel the pressure of like being sticky, <laughs> you know, but, but I think it totally worked, too, because a lot of productions of 42nd Street are very, you know, over the top. <laughs> In that well, way. well, yeah, it's that show within the show. And so most people focus on the show part, you know, and just try to give that razzle dazzle jazz hands to everything. Yeah. But really, the show part, we only had that one little quick thing. Most of my stuff was Maggie outside the show. Exactly. Yeah. Now, 42nd Street, at least our production, it has a possible future potential where it's going to go. We don't know. Have you been in a lot of shows that kind of had that uncertain future? Sure. Most definitely, starting with Spelling Beat. First, I did it as a workshop for no sense up in the Berkshires. And it was just, you know, you had to do it because I was like, oh, this is a new William Finn piece. Yeah, of course, you know, but who knows? And then we ended up going to second stage literally just months later for like a, a very small production in the cafetorium at the school. And then we went right to off Broadway. And then we went right to Broadway. So it was like, crazy fast but none of us knew it was coming each time so it was it was great you know the producer of 42nd street he was definitely in touch with us saying hey i'm trying to do this was that made aware to you during spelling bee um they would come to us and say you know like middle of the run oh hey we're going here you know great there's gonna be product and then you know middle of the run they told us we were then going to off broadway and then we found out we were going to broadway you know and, but it was very fast each time it was you know it wasn't waiting around at all but but from the very beginning it was never really known what its future was going to be really no like literally from the winter of 2004 when there was just an outline of a sketch from from an improv show that some of the cast had done to Bill Finn writing songs where they're literally workshopping it to the next year rehearsing for Broadway. Mm, wow. All those steps in between. Yeah, it was crazy. Like it never, you know, it never happened like that. Well, through that entire rehearsal process, did it have that kind of improv feel, as you said? Did it continue to shape and mold itself? Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Especially more like we'd be in the workshop and we would do something in rehearsal and the next day it's in the script. <laughs> you know, and a lot of what I had to do was come up with stuff for the guest spellers. And so we would try out new ones in the room and, you know, they kept getting more and more ridiculous because, you know, in a rehearsal room, you're trying to make the people in the room laugh. And so it just got more and more ridiculous. And then we had some young students who were like intern writers too and they would give us stuff and we would try it and sometimes they bombed you know but and we, we, we would do that during the whole run really try out new things even if we like looked over at a speller and they had some crazy shirt on we'd be sitting there when the lights were low on us trying to come up with something new to say about that particular person you know so sometimes 
they were only one-offs and we never used it again or, and it either killed or sometimes you'd be like silence. And I'd be like, wah, wah. <laughs> and that was the kids on the bench. That was when they would laugh the hardest on the, they'd be like, we would do it and they would just bomb. And I'd be like, <laughs> we are still missing a speller. Would Mr. Al Sharpton please join us on stage? <laughs> Thank you. Take your seat. This is the cast of Spelling Bee performing at the 2005 Tony Awards with Lisa as Rona, Jay Reese as the vice principal, and special guest speller, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Mr. Sharpton. This fall, Mr. Sharpton will run for class president on a platform of racial equality and macaroni and cheese. Your word is dengue. Dengue. Could you give me the definition, please? It's an infectious disease transmitted by mosquitoes and characterized by headache, joint pain, skin rash, and severe diarrhea. Could you use it in a sentence, please? When the pediatrician asked Billy to describe the symptoms of his dengue, he said, it's like there was a race out of my tushy and everybody won. That has to be so fun to have a show with that much freedom and spontaneity and newness every performance. Oh, yeah. And it was a one act. There was no intermission. It was like a 90 minute show. Start to finish. Boom. You got it. Every show was different. You know, like it was great. Now, with that being your very first Broadway show, I mean, it sounds like I've never been on Broadway, but it sounds like that's a very different kind of experience for a Broadway show. Oh, I think so. A lot of times, you know, it's in development and working for, you know, sometimes 10 years or something before something actually hits the stage, let alone get the Broadway run or, you know, it just this one was very unique in that way and that it was such a huge hit. You know, we won the Tony for best book. Uh, Dan Fogler won for best actor. Like it was it was awesome. Well, that leads us into the first story that you wanted to talk about which deals with Nine to Five, another show that had its own pre-Broadway run. You know, where is it going to go? How's it going to get there? And you say that that rehearsal process for Nine to Five was actually the most difficult of any show that you've ever done. And you say that the creatives were constantly disagreeing and you would scrap a whole day's work, you would start over. Now, this is a musical based upon a popular movie. And so it had a script, it had a story. What exactly was being worked on or had to be figured out? I mean, we were working with amazing people. Joe Mantello directed. Andy Blankenbuehler was the choreographer. We had amazing people in the show. But I think maybe it was stylistically wise. Uh, No one really knew. But we would do learn, take all day and learn a whole big group number. Andy would choreograph and everything. And then at the end of the day, Joe would come in and he'd be like, and then it was scrapped. And then we would literally start over. And Anne Harada was in this. And on numerous occasions, she was like, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm quitting. Like she was about to quit so many times. Wow. <laughs> because it was just so frustrating for everyone. So like, I just think they just weren't agreeing on how it should look and how it should go. You know, and I mean, obviously, eventually they did. But it was it was a constant do and redo. Which sounds like a workshop, really. But it was during the rehearsal process. This is what I'm for saying. We were in, um, it was that way when we were rehearsing for being at the Amundsen 
which was our out-of-town run. I mean, during tech, they're doing lights. We're in the lobby changing stuff, rehearsing in the lobby. There was one time when they couldn't agree on this one number. And so we had a show. Couldn't do it. We went out, stood still and sang. Wait, wait, wait. Eggy, eggy. Oh, my God. Because they couldn't. They, we didn't know what to do. Wait, wait, so agree. during during the show this happened? So you just yes, like previews. Oh my god. Stood out there and sang and then left. That is crazy. It's yeah. like instead of doing something, do nothing, stand there, sing, and get off the stage. Uh-huh. For that particular number. Wow. Yeah. It was ju- it was challenging. I mean, we were having fun while we were doing it, but like eventually we everyone's oh my god. <laughs> you know. So Finally come to Broadway, we, you know, more changes, more changes, we doing it. Then there was trouble with the, I think the lighting designers, they weren't liking what they were doing. They ended up hiring a new set of lighting designers, the, the LED screen in the back. That was a problem and way over budget. Well, yeah, because this was at a time where that wasn't as common as it is now. Oh, it was like one of the first. And yeah. we were all like, you know, this is cool, but it was, you know, expensive. So I think there were a lot of hurdles in that way. You know, the set itself had this big ginormous hole in the middle of the stage that the desks would come up. You know, we had an accident during tech. Mark Kudish thought the crash pad was there, jumped. It wasn't. I mean, he could kill himself. He didn't, but, you know, and uh, Mark was like, well, I didn't die because I know how to fall. I mean, (laughs) so, you know, I mean, it's true. He rolled and lived, but he was all bruised. I mean, it was a lot. Yeah. But once the show was finally up, it was really fun. It's a great show, you know. Did that only start on Broadway or did you start to have fun even out of town? Oh, we had fun out of town too, except for the one number where we were like. Standing there. Hello. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I read in interviews that, Dolly Parton, obviously this was her first musical, and so she was kind of trying her hand at this, but at the same time, she said it was a wonderful experience for her. So when you write for musicals, you've got a little more freedom to write basically what you think the character is feeling and knowing, and however that turns out, it can be longer, it can be shorter, so it actually got to be fun, and I had fun just being all the different characters. Was she a part of that day-to-day rehearsal process? She wasn't there every day, but she was there a lot. And I don't want to paint such a negative picture. It was fun. I mean, and we were working with Dolly Part. Like it was, it was great, you know, but comparing rehearsal processes, that this process was the most difficult. It, you know, during tech, she would make us fudge and hand it and give us all like homemade fudge. And Um, She would be backstage as we would come off, you know, you go to your gondola, you change into your robe and you go up to your dressing room and she'd be there giving everybody high fives. Great job, you know. I mean, I was like, Dolly Parton. Oh my gosh, how fun that must have been. Yeah, so it was great. And Nine to Five is a movie that everybody knew, you know, like, it's fun. We had Allison Janney, Stephanie Block, Megan Hilty, Mark Kudish. I mean, that's fantastic cast. Now, each of those people, they're known for their voices, strong voices, except probably Allison Janney. You know, she's yeah. from the TV world. So was that taken into consideration as they doled out songs and duets and working those numbers? I don't think any of the songs she had to sing were exceptionally difficult. 
No, like the big power ballad, of course, that went to Stephanie Block. And, um, you know, Megan had some really sweet songs. But Allison had her fair share of songs, but they weren't terribly rangy or anything like that, you know. And, and I think, you know, for being an, not really a singer, I think she did. I think she did a great job. With this particular production, since you were in the ensemble and there's obviously these big stars up front, was there that distinction or did it really feel like an, an ensemble, everyone working together? If I recall, I, I never felt, you know, I was in the lowly group or anything. It was <laughs> definitely a, a working together. Like I play, I was in the ensemble and I played Missy Hart, the boss's wife, you know, just a little bit part. So I had scenes with them. Uh, there was never that atmosphere of us, them, which some, I know I've heard some shows can be like that. But no, I don't I don't remember ever feeling like that. Because by this point, you'd done Spelling Bee, you'd done South Pacific. In fact, you left South Pacific to come do 9 to 5, right? Mm -hmm. Was it a different process being uh, for 9 to 5, being in the ensemble again, whereas in Spelling Bee, you felt like you were a bit more part of things? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I was, you know, you always think, Oh, in my first Broadway show, I'm I'm going to be in the ensemble. I'll be second tree from the left or whatever. You know, having made my Broadway debut in a principal part, that was amazing. Um, and then going into South Pacific at Lincoln Center, it was such a prestigious production to be a part of. It wasn't like, well, now I can never do ensemble because I've been a lead, you know, because that's a thing. Once you get a certain number of credits, like you can't, go back. But I wasn't at that place yet. It was my Broadway debut. So because I was the head nurse in South Pacific, and that's definitely an ensemble part. But, you know, it was such a prestigious show. And, you know, we get to work at Lincoln Center and work with Bart Sure, And, you know, it was fine. <laughs> and then moving from that ensemble to the next ensemble, you know, it, did, it just made sense. It was a parallel move. It wasn't really stepping backwards, you know. What led to your decision to choose 9 to 5 over staying with South Pacific? For one, I wanted to work with Dolly Parton because that's cool. And two, when I was in South Pacific, when I was originally cast, I thought that my role was simply head nurse. That was my ensemble track, and that's great. Two weeks into rehearsal, stage management comes up to me, and they're like, oh, and by the way, um, you're going to be covering Bloody Mary. I laughed. I thought he was joking. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm serious. And I was like, agent. I had to cover Bloody Mary. And I didn't want to go on. Hmm. Yeah. Because this doesn't scream Bloody Mary. I was like, I had to have dialect coaching. I was like, I'm going to offend someone. I mean, now it wasn't as woke a period as it is now, but even no, back but then, even then, I was that like, was still like, wait a minute, that's not quite right. Not quite right. Yeah. And this was, you know, back in 2008. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. You know, I had rehearsals. I was ready. If need be, if the time had come. And the Did person you ever who, go on? Nope. nope. The person who replaced me, Liz McCartney, she looks just like me. She had to go on. Now, thank goodness. I was a second cover. Thank goodness. Um, no, I was like, oh, I got another show. Great. I'm out. Even though I would have loved to have stayed with South Pacific longer. But, uh, you know, another show came along, another credit, work with Dolly Parton. I was like, this is a no brainer. Yeah. 
<laughs> this is no brainer. Now the reviews for nine to five were were mixed, but not necessarily horrible. And of the ones that I read, they they would criticize some elements of this direction or set design, you know, whatever. And when I saw it, that was pretty much my experience. I could nitpick little things, but overall, I enjoyed the show. Mm-hmm. It's an enjoyable show because the music is great, the performances were great. Was there a sense that that enjoyment of the show was going to carry the day rather than these negative reviews? Totally. Well, we thought we have stars. We have a really fun show. We have a known entity in nine to five. It's, you know, like, you know, people know it and love it. And, you know, it was very disappointing. And plus, we're also in the ginormous theater of the Marriott Marquis, which is notoriously difficult to fill those seats anyway. You know, you start seeing those sales decline and knowing the producing team having been, I think, over on the set and lighting budget and, you know, ticket sales not being what they would have wanted. I think, you know, I think they pulled the plug. When did you find out? When did the cast find out that it was going to be closing? I think, you know, we opened in the spring and I think it was towards the end of the summer. So it lasted longer than some of my other shows. (laughs) (laughs) How did they present the closing? What was their reasoning behind it that they gave you? Oh, well, they don't give you a reason. You just get a company meeting and they tell you the show is closing. You don't get, there's no explanation. (laughs) No one sits you down and shows you the numbers and here's our nut, here's what we're pulling in, we've got to pay the investment. They don't tell you any of that, you know. You just sit and pray every week and you look at the numbers going down and you're like, (laughs) and then you get that meeting and everyone's like, oh, man, you know. So was there a sense of seeing it coming or was it a surprise? Yes, I think people were seeing it coming, definitely. And so what was that closing night like? It's always bittersweet. I mean, we had a party. We went someplace afterwards, <laughs> uh, you know, like you do. Um, but it was fun. And, it, you know, you obviously, you always bond with a new cast and everyone, you know, you're going to miss each other. And But that's that thing. Everyone, you always kind of have a foot out the door anyway, looking for that next, <laughs> next job. And so it was like, oh, sorry, guys. Oh, this was, you know, we hope it was going to last. But uh, say la vie. We're about to head into Lisa's second story where she talks about Escape to Margaritaville. And then after her third story in this episode, that'll be the end of it for you. But you should know that this conversation doesn't end there. For Win Me subscribers, they not only get early access to these episodes, but they also get the full conversation with guests like Lisa, where she talks about her audition for Spelling Bee and answers the final five questions. This full episode and other bonus content are available to those who become a monthly or yearly subscriber to Why I'll Never Make It. Though I certainly enjoy producing this podcast, I'm essentially a one-man operation, and it is both costly and time-intensive to put together each episode. So for just a few dollars a month, you'll not only support these podcasting efforts, but you'll also get to hear extended conversations with guests that you won't find anywhere else. So please consider lending your financial support to this podcast with a monthly or yearly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe or just look for the link in the show notes. 
Well, that takes us into the next story, which was a, a few years later, but this was Escape to Margaritaville. And you actually thought that this was going to be your golden ticket. I mean, you got you got Jimmy Buffett music, you have the built-in audience, you have a fun story, and your out-of-town run was actually pretty great. And this out-of-town run was rather lengthy, especially for a Broadway show. It started at La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego, then went to New Orleans, Houston, and Chicago. Now, was the show being worked on through all of these various cities? Yeah, definitely. You know, little tweaks here and there, new jokes, new this, you know. It was a fun, silly show with music, you know, and Great choreography, you know, fun costumes. You're on an island and the, the volcano erupts. I mean, it's just fun. And now, they had to make up the story. It's not like 9 to 5 where they had an existing. They had to make up a story around his music. Did that story continue to change or did it stay kind of set once you were involved? It definitely continued to change, like through the workshops, through the out-of-town runs. You know, we had these characters who were like island zombies, kind of. <laughs> Um, and those definitely morphed over the time. They're like, what is this? Who are they? You know, sometimes songs were replaced or, you know, like you do in a rehearsal. But it was a really fun show. Just fun and funny because um, our writers also were TV writers, too. And so the, I, I thought the comedy was hilarious. It was just a lot of fun. You know, you thinking that is a built in audience of years and years of fandom for Jimmy Buffett music. Now, it wasn't the story of Jimmy Buffett. They took his songs and made a show like Mamma Mia, how they right. took Abba songs, made a story about it. You know, let's be real. Mamma Mia, fun show. Is it a great show? No offense to anyone who wrote it or was in it, but it's fun. And everybody exactly. loves the music. It is fun. It's silly. There's a romance story. And you sing. everybody sings at the end in fun costumes, right? And was that kind of the template, thinking this is another Mamma Mia in that vein? Right. And, and the, I mean, the writers weren't thinking that. It was its own thing. But, you know, in my mind, it certainly is in that category. And I personally thought it's a better actual show than Mamma Mia. So I was like, this is great. I'm going to ride this one, ride it on out. I mean, they're going to have to kick me out of this sucker, right? You know, this is what I'm thinking. You know, I was like, I got my own dressing room. I'm here at the Marquis again. It's at the Marriott Marquis. I should have been wary. Because <laughs> uh, we obviously closed much sooner than I had anticipated. And I, I think it was your first year in a show, success is based on the New York audience. And then the tourists pick it up once they've heard about it and heard good reviews. And then that's, you know, your second year and beyond tour is really. And the New York audiences were not about it. They were like, mm -hmm. in any, on tour, it did great. You know, I just don't think the New York audience was in love with that. And they, I think they went in kind of like not ready to not like it, you know, well, it wasn't just Jimmy Buffett music. I was reading, it's a, it's a list of songwriters and other songs that were included. Do you think that that helped, you know, bolster Jimmy Buffett's music or distracted from it? You know, I don't know. It was mostly his and maybe he co collaborated with somebody on a certain song. But it was, you know, like that was the feel of the show. That island vibe is five o'clock somewhere, you know. 
you got a beach ball. Beach balls dropped from the ceiling at the end. Come on. That's fun. I mean, that reminds me of SpongeBob. They, they had beach balls too. So maybe that's a clue. Like if your show involves beach balls, think twice. Maybe. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe a clue. that's it. But you say you had a fun time, and I've certainly had that too, where it can sometimes be funner on stage for the cast than it can be for the audience watching it. Do you think that that's what happened? Or, or Maybe. Maybe. You had to know what it was. Like, am I saying this was a great piece of theater? No. It was escapism, literally. Exactly. And so if you go into it with an eye of, I want to be moved well, you're not going to enjoy yourself. Go get a margarita and come and laugh and see great dance, dancing and costumes and funny jokes and stuff like that. I just think, you know, sometimes it's at the wrong time for the audiences. Like, I bet if it had come after the pandemic, it might have done better because people are just like, I just need to escape, you know. Something. Give me something. Yeah. Right. Well, it reminds me a lot of like Joseph and the Amazing Technical or Dreamcoat. It's just one fun song after another. It's not meant to change the world. It's not meant to. It's, it's just fun, silly songs done in a kind of tongue in cheek way. Yeah. You know, and you're like, do you know your Bible history? Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, I mean, kind of. I mean, sort of. Kind of, right. You, ne <laughs> yeah. you recognize some names and maybe some stories, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just think it was the wrong timing. And we were all just like, what? Still, I, I, don't, I don't get it, you know. So comparing Margaritaville, that rehearsal process out of town to nine to five, you, you would say that you enjoyed Margaritaville, that process a lot more? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was totally fun. Now, even though it was still changing, what do you think was the difference between the two? Oh, probably just the energies in the room. It's just whoever's the mix of people, I think. You know, because it's always hard doing a new show because it's always changing. Yeah, like when you're in previews and stuff and the writers come to you, you know, and you've got four new joke lines and a set of new lyrics and you got to do them that night. I mean, that's never easy. You know, for me, it's much easier to put in a new line than it is to put in a new lyric. If I get a new lyric, my brain wants to explode. It terrifies me. But a new line, I'm, I don't know why. But my, I'm like, okay, great, got it. You know, I don't know. Um, but it's a different way of processing. You just kind of have to go with your gut. Because sometimes when you're in a long run or something that's already established, and people say, know the lines or know the material. It's a lot of different feeling, you know, when you're in a show and it's something that's already set and established and you're going in and doing it as compared to like, you're literally creating this now. It's a new thing and you're, <laughs> you're just kind of going for it. But that's exactly what you did with Spelling Bee. That was very new and, you know, changing all the time. But that came more from you rather than these creatives giving you things. Yeah. Yeah, well, and also, you know, the creatives too. But I have to say I am very blessed, very lucky to been in five out of my six Broadway credits are new shows. Mm. I've only had to go in and replace once. And that was in um, Priscilla. You know, so that's just go in and learn, here's the choreography. <laughs> here's, <laughs> here's your song, go for it. It's really such a different experience when you are putting up a show for the first time. Yeah. Now, you mentioned those New York audiences and kind of turned their nose up at it. Was that a surprise based upon 
your reaction audiences out of town? Totally. We got great reviews. And of course, there's some mix in there too. But for the most part, it was a hit. People liked it. It was fun, silly, great music, beach balls, margaritas. (laughs) So when it comes to the closing of Margaritaville, did it kind of seem inevitable once the reviews came out, once audiences weren't really taking to it? Yeah. And the writing was on the wall. Yeah. You know, we're like, come on, Jimmy Buffett, can't you just float us for a while? I mean, you know, he just, he probably has the money to do it, but of course he's not going to do that, you know. But yeah, of course, especially when you've been in the business as long as I have, and you're like, oh, here it comes. You could just see it. Was Jimmy Buffett a part of that process? Was he more involved? A lot. Yeah, he was there. He was there a lot. I mean, he wasn't there daily in the rehearsal room, but he was there a lot. And sometimes um, he would come and do the bows and finale with us. He'd come out and sing a song and we'd all sing with him. And it was a lot of fun. We got to hang out and go out, you know, really get to know him and his band. And he invited us when they go play at Jones Beach. And they, oh, every year it's a huge concert. We came and sang on stage with him. And it was awesome, you know, like, so we really got to know him and his crew. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. And Boyd is, he's a smart businessman, right? Right, right. He's not just creative. He also has the business smarts. Yeah. And for this closing night, it actually wasn't your last time to perform it, right? A few days later, you got to do something in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. We had already been booked, I guess. We got to do the 4th of July celebration in front of the Capitol. So that was really way to go out with a bang, you know? Right, right. So you had your closing night on the 1st, I believe. And then the 4th came and you was like, well, this is actually closing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just did a couple of numbers. But yeah, that was our really the way out. So that was kind of fun. Did the whole cast come back for that? Or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a couple of days later. So we were like, sure. Yeah. Why not? Why not? I could use the money. <laughs> now, for this closing night, was it just as enjoyable? You know, obviously bittersweet again. Yeah. You know, especially when you're like, I'm not going to see these people every day again. You know, you make the best of it. And we had kind of all felt it coming for a little while. So, you know, you're you're geared up. You're ready to say your goodbyes. And plus, we knew we were going to see each other in Washington <laughs> and get to do, you know, get to do it again. So, yeah, we still have a text thread that people say happy birthday to everybody. People share stories. Oh, someone got engaged. You know, like we have a text thread uh, that we fun. still keep in contact with everybody. We still have one for my Spelling Bee fam, too. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And texting was relatively new back then. Yeah. So <laughs> we've all kept in touch. And like Dan Fogler sent us the most hilarious like New Year's or was it New Year's or Christmas? It, 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 a video just a bit, just being goofy, you know, just sent it to everybody. Um, so there's a lot of connection in that way. You know, you get really close when you spend that much time. And you know, you get really close and then you're like, okay, bye. It's not like people who have a regular job and they're at that job for 10 years and they see the same people, you know, like you're at a job, you're lucky if it's months, if it's years, whoa, you're really lucky, you know? So it's just a different thing. People come in and out of your life and there's just a handful that you really still keep in touch with. Life's better with American Family Insurance. 
Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. So for story number three, you wanted to talk about being a plus-size lady in the entertainment industry and how that's really not for the faint of heart because just keeping at it and and you hope that you never have to take roles where your weight is really a part of that character. And what was the first role where that was a part, where weight was a central aspect of the character? I actually think because Spelling Bee, it was not. South Pacific, it was not. Nine to Five, it was not, which is amazing. Then came It Should Have Been You, which was great. I mean, it literally was like the main plot point, which it's fine because it was very much so pertained to that story. Poor Jenny, sweet Jenny, such a pretty face, but how you eat Jenny. I swear there's not a man you couldn't date if you lose some weight. But then after that came Escape to Margaritaville, which it was, again, part of the story. And I was like, this cannot be a theme. I have to just be a person. <laughs> like, you know, because you often get pigeonholed and that's all you're seen as, which the industry is changing because now you see more and more people of all shapes and sizes and it doesn't have to be talked about. They're just people. Because it was almost like the elephant in the room. Like if there was somebody in a leading party, if they were heavier and you didn't mention their weight, it was like awkward or something where they felt like they had to, to like justify why you were there or in the story. It was very strange. And it just is, is difficult to be a part of that too many times where, you know, like it, you have to talk about it, <laughs> you know, cause people go around their whole lives and they're just people, you know, um, can't they just be whoever and not have it be an issue that needs to be spoken about or joked about or laughed off or something. So I, I feel like that is changing, which is a good thing. And I would think, and just from looking from the outside, that that is more an issue when it comes to a plus-size woman versus oh, a plus-size man. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, it just depends on the story. And it did, But so many interviews I've had and and people bring it up like, wow, you know, you're a plus size and you're still doing this, you know, and you're like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just me and I've always looked this way and I'm just doing theater, you know, like I, I realized. Was it, was it almost like a questioning, like how can you do this and be plus size? Yeah, all of it. Any question huh. you can imagine or something. And also I'm tall too. I, I remember when I was in my early on in my career, 
my agent said something to me like the conundrum that is Lisa Howard, because if you're short and heavier, oh, best friend role. Or if you sound a certain way or, you know, you're the funny gal or, um, but I was tall and curvy and pretty. People were like, I don't get it. Do you know, it was like, <laughs> like it was a very like the conundrum that is, you know, so, I mean, honestly, and there really aren't roles written for that, whatever that is, you know. So I really did just kind of forge on being like, well, I don't know. I'm just doing it. Everyone's like, what roles are you interested in? I'm like, well, there's nothing really written for me. You know, eventually I'd love to play Mama Rose and Gypsy. But you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. you know, because there is nothing. So that's why I was so glad to have come across a character like Rona, she's just a person who happens to look a certain way. Right. And so then once I started getting into the show about, you know, the main plot point is talking about your weight. And then the next one to be, I, was, I almost didn't take Margaritaville because I was like, when I was doing the workshops, there were a lot more like literal fat jokes. And I was like, I can't. It's in, I, it, it, this too much, you know, and they toned it down. But in the end, I mean, I got the guy and, you know, he's like, I don't get, you know, it, it was good. And But it, when we first started the show, I was like, this is a lot. This is extreme. Can we not make it that? Like, ooh, it made everyone in the room uncomfortable. Well, well, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, because it's, yeah, you know, whenever you're pointing out someone's physical characteristic and it's kind of the butt of a joke, that can be funny and you can do it lighthearted or it can be very awkward and uncomfortable because I... You're like, I'm right here. Yeah. It's... I'm, I'm standing here. <laughs> I am in the room. Because I, I had a another guest on a couple of seasons ago and he was a heavier set gentleman who then eventually lost some weight. But during his heavier phase, he was often... He, he had a brother who was also bigger and they would do a lot of fat jokes or things that were centered around them yeah. being bigger. And and so he was fine with that as long as he was the one in charge of where that joke went. But a lot of times it was just, okay, well, you need to get up now and then you need to fall on your face because that's funny. You know, it was like put upon him, like because you're bigger, we're going to put you in these situations. Exactly. Yeah, so it's it has definitely been a challenging part of my career and I've had to talk about it and Every interview known to man, and you're like, well, now you brought it up here. I didn't. Course. Well, that's but that's purposely because you were talking about what's a challenge or what has been a challenge in you know in, in this industry, and you know, that being one of them. So I know I brought it up, but only because like everybody asks you about it, and you're like, huh, okay, <laughs> you know. I mean, I'm trying to think through. Like, yes, yes, someone who's bigger stands out from someone who's skinnier. But I, I would also say that in reverse. Someone who's really skinny stands out from someone who's... So why do you think that your size is such an issue or has been such a focal point? I think because it's still the last, like, taboo thing in our society. And it's, it's still something that people think it's okay to make fun of someone about. You know what I mean? There's so many things that are PC. and, and But I have to say, in the last, you know... The culture is shifting, most definitely, but it's, it was still something that people are, were shunned for, ashamed for, so many things about it that when you are on stage, for one, 
everything's exaggerated when you're on stage. So me being tall and big, like I'm a big presence on stage. I can't tell you, I cannot tell you how many people see me on stage and then meet me afterwards. And they're like, oh, you're like normal size. On stage, you look like a giant. And you're like, bless Thanks. you. Bless you. I, I, I realize that. I've heard that literally after every show. Like someone will meet huh. me at the stage door and I'm, I'm five, eight, you know, and they'll be like, oh, you're just like normal. I'm like, yeah. Yes, I am. You know, when I go to the grocery, nobody looks twice at me. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I'm out, no, you know, I'm. It's not like crazy, but on stage, somehow it just magnifies everything. You know, so people are always like, "Oh, look at that." And how has this messed with your own perception of yourself? Um, no, it would necessarily say messed with it, but there's. There's always going to be baggage from, especially growing up in the time I did of having, what do I, what's a good way to put it, weight issues or, you know, like not being necessarily the healthiest weight. And I don't know what's the best way to, to put that. But like, I mean, I've literally been that type my whole life. So it just is who I am. And then there's some parts where you're like, well, if it's so wrong, it does make you feel like, okay, well, there's something wrong with me then. You know, because I've never been this other thing. It's not like I was thin in my youth and then gained a bunch of weight. You know, like I kind of looked the same. There was a period, especially when I was having babies, that I was a little heavier. And so that I've lost, you know, I'm back down to where my I, I was, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know about me like necessarily messed with me. I can see if I was once like felt muscles and all that and then I changed. I can see if that would really mess you up. But mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know. It's literally always been what I've looked like. You know, when I was younger, of course, I was thinner. And I'm like, God, I wish I still looked like that. But it's been still in the same ballpark, you know. So I, I can't really say that it's completely, something's completely shifted. It's just I am who I am. And and maybe that's why I've just been able to be like, well, I don't know. I'm just going to do what I do. And somebody's going to cast me in something. You know, which is obviously proven true. Let me knock on some wood because you never know when your last show is going to be. <laughs> right. So I don't know if anything really, if it definitely shaped. But, you know, at being in, in society and having all those negative messages around what that means to be heavier, you know, because for someone who's never struggled with it, they just think you're lazy or have no willpower. And it's not necessarily the case it's not what it is really you know like everybody just processes things differently or it's what your family patterns and all of that stuff like there's so many things that go into it and so there's definitely still a i feel like in society in general looking down a, you know someone if you're not this well you must you're doing something wrong you're lazy or you know you're ignorant or you just don't have any willpower and therefore you're somehow less and does that perception does that tend to just kind of roll off your back and you're able to keep going or do you fight against it and get angry at it how do you respond no i definitely don't get angry i don't really fight against it but there have been times i guess for me it kind of is what it is but i also i think it has had me set expectations of i know what the industry is i know what they're going to cast and I know I'm not going to get that role. 
I haven't been like, oh my God, I really, I could do that role. I'm like, sure, I probably could do it really well, but I know I'm not going to keep casting. So I'm going to go for that role. You know, I just, you just have to be smart about it. Like if you know what the industry is and you know, if I look like a giant on stage, I'm not going to get cast. <laughs> you know, like you just have to be smart about it because that is what it is. Now, granted, Nowadays, in the past several years, casting and people in general are having a broader vision of what it's okay to look like, which is great, which is great. So I have to say, I, I've most definitely felt a shift in that story. What was it? The last show Bonnie Milligan was in. She was a key, the lead character, and it was never mentioned. She just was who she was. Fantastic, you know, like she just was. She was just a person, and she just happened to be that character. Exactly, you know, and it wasn't a plot point. Thank God. I anticipate more things like that coming because there are so many people, especially you know. I think even with fashion, people are, you know, people are just being more accepting of different people and different bodies and different <laughs> genders and all the things, you know. So I, I think we're on the right path. Well, this has been wonderful to talk to you. I love just talking to you and laughing with you. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This was very fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Lisa Howard and me today. And remember, you'll get early access to future episodes by becoming a WinMe subscriber. But I never want finances to keep anyone from this bonus content. So if a monthly or yearly subscription isn't possible for you, then please contact me at it at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to offer you a reduced price or even free subscription. There's also an email link you can find in the show notes. Well, until next time, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and publishing this podcast, which is a production of WinMe Media. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me in two weeks as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.